Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Associate Professor in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University. This is episode CCII, The Death of Cleopatra and Antony. With Octavian triumphant at the Battle of Actium, the scene is finally set for a dramatic showdown in Alexandria. Cleopatra and Antony, a couple famous for their strategy and volatility, will pay the ultimate price for resisting Rome, leaving Octavian free to assume a role of undisputed power. Here's Rhiannon Evans. After the Battle of Actium, Mark Antony and Cleopatra split up. I don't mean they split up romantically, but they go separate ways initially. Well, um... I kind of wonder if they split up romantically. Well, maybe. You know, it's very hard to get insight into that relationship, mm. given the amount of propaganda. But yeah, Mark Antony goes to Cyrene in North Africa. Uh, so he's basically going further west. And Cleopatra goes back to Alexandria. There's got to be a plan of some sort here, even if it is the only options open to them. Mm. So Octavian, young Caesar, has won the Battle of Actium. And it seemed to be a last-ditch effort for Antony and Cleopatra to have, you know, like any success, any say in how the empire was going. This is most of their resources going into this battle, and this is what they're pinning their hopes on, the nice, strong fleet. What options do they have left open to them at this point? Well, at the most, they've got Alexandria, they've got Egypt. Vast wealth and resources, Vast therefore. Wealth. Yes. Having said that, it takes time recruit men and build ships. So they've lost all of that kind of thing here. Yeah, yeah they've lost a lot of troops mm. and 19 legions. Yeah. An incredible number of men they've lost. We've got to guard against reading this in the light of what subsequently happens because people sort of start thinking immediately that they're making separate plans, which is possible mm. that, you know, Cleopatra is trying to safeguard Alexandria and she's cut Mark Antony off. And Mark Antony is trying to see where he can escape to, which is what is brought up at some point later. But we don't know if that was in their minds at this point. I mean, there's a certain amount of panic after Actium, I think. Mm. And Mark Antony may have been trying to see what troops he could scrabble together. He may have been trying to go somewhere strategic to do that. It doesn't work out, so we don't really know. So that's what Cyrene is. Cyrene, maybe. Yeah. What does he do while he's there? He goes there because he's got someone he thinks is loyal, a man called Lucius Pinarius. All right, so he's got people that have been his legates, which is what Lucius Pinarius has been at Philippi, or people he's appointed at various places in the East as well. They're all going to let him down, and yeah. that's what happens with Lucius Pinarius. Yeah. He's actually another great nephew of Julius Caesar. Oh, so okay. technically in the same position as Octavian, but left tiny, tiny amounts in Caesar's will and therefore more likely to side with Antony, which he had initially. But he hears about the defeat and gives up the four legions to Octavian immediately. Oh, okay. So he had men that Mark Antony were hoping to yes. get hold of. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Yes, I should have explained that. There are four legions there. That's mm. a good reason to go to Cyrene. Yeah. Okay. So that is no longer an option here. The result is... Plutarch tells us that mm. Antony gets quite depressed. And this has been a characteristic of Antony all the way through the life of Plutarch, it seems, when things are going poorly for him. He's got a, a kind of lovesick tendency to get quite emotional about these things. Yeah, which would have been seen as the antithesis of how a Roman man should behave mm. to be in touch with their emotions at all. 
And so he is being portrayed very much in Plutarch as beholden to Cleopatra. You know, if you're in the sway of a woman, then no wonder you get over-emotional. Those two things are not unrelated for Plutarch. I think we should take a lot of what Plutarch says with a pinch of salt. He says at this point he contemplates suicide mm. and he, you know, he's only stopped by some of his men. And his depression is really emphasized by Plutarch here. The reason that I'm quite suspicious of it, besides being a bit suspicious of Plutarch's casting of Antony and Cleopatra, particularly of Antony, is that he spends about two chapters comparing him to Timon of Athens, who's only really known to us now because Shakespeare wrote a very depressing tragedy about Timon. He's a misanthropist and he just hides away as a hermit. And from memory, very little happens in the play. I mean, what can you have happen? But this is a real Athenian was based on. It seems like he's making this comparison at such length that it's a kind of literary point yeah. rather than perhaps telling us very much about Antony's mood, which Plutarch probably didn't have that good an insight into at this point. Okay, yeah. But yeah. he often tries to balance out the bad with the good in Antony. I think that's his depiction of Antony, that we've got positives and negatives mixed up in this person. So he's presenting a complex personality, I guess, that at the same time, he's kind of giving away all of his possessions, very generous with them to his remaining followers. Mm. And that generosity, I mean, that's what makes him popular in Alexandria. That's been a characteristic throughout. Very quickly, he gets to the point where, and this is what happened with Lucius Panarius, allies start abandoning Antony they see the way the tide is turning and that you bet yourself on the winning horse. Antony probably thinks he's got time to get his resources together because mm. he's kind of laid out all of these client kings in the East. That's something that I've mentioned before, that this is not just about giving away where Rome has influence or possessions, that what he does with Cleopatra is kind of a, a larger part of what he's doing with other kings. He's consolidating these Eastern kings as beholden to him. But unfortunately, he's read the room wrongly there yeah. because they see themselves as beholden to Rome, I guess. And now Octavian has control of Rome. So they all turn to him in turn, basically, as Antony would have seen it, his allies start defecting. So Herod, who had previously advised Antony to betray Cleopatra... He's playing all kinds of people off against each other, but he sees the way the wind is blowing and he goes to Rhodes to meet with Octavian and to basically hand over his power to him, resign his kingship to him. They seem to do this very elaborate thing, which eventually Cleopatra will try and do as well, which is, you know, you give them the scepter and the throne and the crown and that shows that they now have control of your kingdom. Mm. And that's what he does with Octavian. Okay. This is enough to win Octavian over. So yeah, Herod yeah. plays that right. So in, in this case, Octavian does that thing where he magnanimously shows mercy and leaves Herod in power. Yeah. Now he is essentially controlling that client kingship. And I have to say, this is the kind of thing that will give hope to Cleopatra, mm. and it's going to be false hope. Yes. And notice that Octavian isn't in Alexandria yet. He's meeting with Herod in Rhodes. He's kind of working his way there very slowly. He spends quite a bit of time consolidating Greece. Yes. So Antony and Cleopatra have plenty of time to go through various states of emotion and also put various plans together. It takes a whole year. It takes a whole year before he really gets to Alexandria. That would have been a terrible year for Antony and Cleopatra for them just to be stressed out like nothing else, knowing that you've got Octavian there coming towards you, but 
there's nothing that you can really do about it. Well, at various times, as we'll go through, they think there are things that they can do, but yeah. it's like the cards just start to fall one by one, or the mm. dominoes, I guess, not the cards. Dominoes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Antony has gone to Cyrene initially. And Cleopatra goes back to Alexandria, and <laughs> she reaches Alexandria before word of the battle does. So uh, she treats it like she won. Yeah. <laughs> She spins it entirely her way. And this is what the Romans do as well. She's got the prows of her, her ships mm. and she's got them got them wreathed with victory garlands. Yeah. I read an account where they've found victory stelae further along the Nile. So the word of her victory, as it was at Actium, reached that far down for them to do a little bit of, you know, stonework in it's celebration. Not, it's an alternative truth. <laughs> yes. It's fine. Yeah. Plutarch portrays her actions as being kind of the opposite of Antony. While Antony goes into a melancholy kind of despair, she's all strength and strategy and putting her best face forward. Yeah, and I have to say again that I think this is probably exaggerated so that he can have that very wide comparison. But indeed, she does seem to be much more action-oriented. She goes back to being, I guess we would say, an authoritarian ruler. She makes sure that there's no one who can rise up, that this isn't a potential moment of weakness, Mm -hmm. which means silencing, basically executing various members of the Egyptian aristocracy. And all of her old enemies are got rid of and she can confiscate their estates like she needs more wealth. But anyway, it will generate that. Mm. Plutarch says she loots temples, which might be propaganda against Cleopatra. I think we have to be very careful about all of that. And she starts arming soldiers. She also executes the former king of Armenia, Artavastes, who was living under her basically sort of house arrest. It's okay. not his house, but... Yeah. And she tries to win the support of Atropatene, the king of Media, by sending the head of Atravastes to him. Okay, yeah. So I guess promising him power over this region. So we do have a source that claims that Egypt was getting behind her. Now, it's a slightly dodgy light source. I know we talk about all our sources as pretty dodgy at times, but this is a much later commentary on Horace. And the reason they're mentioning Cleopatra is that after Actium, Horace wrote a poem commemorating the victory Mm. at Actium and seeing it as a victory over this weird and extravagant and foreign queen. It starts with the famous line, now we must drink. So let's get drinking and celebrate um, and goes into detail about Cleopatra. And the commentary on the poem by Horace says that there were some priests in southern Egypt who were offering to fight for her. So their priestly roles would normally mean they were exempt from fighting. So that's kind of the extent to which she has won support in Egypt. We're also told that she, she at least plans for an escape should it be needed. But that also doesn't seem to go to plan. An escape, we're told, for Antony and their family, which Mm. I think puts lie to the idea that she's consistently working against him by this stage. The plan is that they have some ships built on the Red Sea and they escape on them towards India, which I have to say would sort of sound like a bit of a fantasy because India is geographically for the Greeks and Romans in that realm beyond what they really know very much about. You yeah, know, yeah. Alexander got that far, but not many other people have. Yeah, it's just a vague direction, isn't it? Yeah, I think at so. That point. Yeah, and also just a kind of nebulous utopian zone in some way. That's what it's thought of as in geographies. Mm. But this fleet was burnt by Malchus, the king of the Nabataean Arabs, 
who, like a lot of those Eastern monarchs, is trying to play for Octavian's favour. Mm, okay. What happens at this point after Actium? And I know that there's a quite a considerable span of time here. There are lots of competing accounts here, various degrees of reliability, but they all tell the same broad story, I think is a good way to put it. They're just arguing about the details. So we had an account, somebody had an account at one point of Cleopatra's doctor, who's called Olympus. And that, of course, is lost, but was used by Plutarch. It was available for him. So you could, on that basis, say that Plutarch's the most accurate. Certainly not what I'm arguing there. Mm. And we have lost an epic poem. And we also could have used, although it would have been very biased, the relevant chapters of Augustus's memoir. So what that boils down to, really, on the page when we're talking about details, is uh, Plutarch, Dio... Uh, Appian? Yeah, Appian a bit. Yeah, okay. All right, so Antony and Cleopatra still see a hope of negotiating with Octavian. I think Cleopatra in particular. Yeah, I I guess she's coming from a position of authority, not direct rivalry, I guess, and all the other kings are getting off scot-free. From Antony's point of view, actually, he might see that, you know, Lepidus was allowed to retire quietly as the triumvirate unraveled, so why can't I or why shouldn't I be able to? We've seen instances of Octavian being merciful. We've also seen what happened during the prescriptions and to Brutus and Cassius after Philippi or as part of Philippi. But I guess Antony has as much to blame as anything. I don't know. I think he can realistically be hopeful for mercy. Yeah, I mean, it's worth a try, isn't it? Uh, He certainly does try. So negotiations, what are they asking for? What are they coming to the table with? And what response are they given? So Cleopatra wants, at the very least, to have her children spared. Mm. And she would quite like the potential for them to succeed her. Mm. I guess she's offering as client kings, as we've got in the other regions. She still has plenty of wealth to offer in return. And one thing that's going to become clear, and the reason Octavian eventually makes his way to Egypt, really, is that he needs resources to, to pay, pay off his, his soldiers. Yeah, yeah. So she can provide that. I mean, the counter-argument to all of this is that Octavian can take it anyway. Mm, yeah, yeah. But, you know, she can offer that in a way that I guess she could offer continuity in Egypt, you could say. something That sounds like a very politician speak, doesn't it? While he actually has power and access to those resources because she's got this vast kingdom and this extraordinary wealth that goes back centuries the stuff that's portable she starts to squirrel away in her mausoleum Mm. so she's got this tomb and i think this is very telling that while she's negotiating she's also putting a lot of her jewels and other valuables in the place of her death she can burn that down if needed exactly so it's always the threat there of if you come for me you're going to lose it all i think that cleopatra would have had more luck if the fact that the legacy that she wants to leave, i.e. her children in charge of Egypt, didn't begin and end with Caesar's son, young Caesarian, because that's a direct rival to Octavian. And he's currently joint ruler with her, as Ptolemy the 15th. That's right, yeah. That's a problem. In many ways, you could say that Cleopatra was unlucky in that one of her prime moves in making that link with Rome 
is something that ends up being a problem for the man who's now in charge of Rome. Mm. Like she couldn't have foreseen that Octavian would be the one left in charge. Yeah. So yeah, that is a problem, you're right. And of course, her other children are her children by Antony, who's the other enemy in this picture. Yeah. Some of them will end up doing okay out of it, but you wouldn't say that was a dead cert at this point. Mm. Mm. Sorry, it is interesting that for most of this, it seems to be Antony and Cleopatra negotiating separately. Yeah, it does seem that way. On a and- few things, they give a united front, but they're also going, you know, if you don't want to deal with that person, I'm still here with these carrots. Yeah, and I do wonder that Octavian gets more out of depicting them as being this rival kingdom to Rome. Mm-hmm. It's kind of separating it out. And if they stick together in their negotiations, maybe it looks like that's what it is. You know, all these rumours that Octavian is happy to feed of Antony wanting to move the centre of the empire to Alexandria. And, you know, he has Antony's will read out in the Senate illegally, mm. which says that he wants to be buried at Alexandria. And that's a bad look for Antony. Yeah. And there's also rumors that she wants to be installed on the Capitol Hill, you know, in the center of Rome. But if she makes it look like Egypt is her domain, which it largely is, and she's happy to stay there. And Antony can make it look like I'm just a Roman general. I'm not trying to do anything with changing the space of the empire, you know, the the layout of the empire, the way that it's ruled, then that will work better for them there. I I think it's reasonable to argue that, although I'm helped a bit by knowing what Octavian does propaganda-wise afterwards. Yeah. Anthony's strategy seems to be mostly, I'm I'm going to bribe you and just let me leave. He says various things, you know, but I'll retire somewhere. He, He doesn't have a lot to offer. He probably is offering up his allies, but they've offered themselves up. Mm. He doesn't have troops, really. In fact, he's in such dire straits that the group we're told of who openly say that they will declare their allegiance to Antony are a troop of gladiators in Asia Minor who are going to die anyway. So they probably see this as a possible way out of death. He just doesn't have that kingdom behind him, but I guess he has the fact that he was... Octavian's companion in defeating the assassins. They have a past together, Mm. um, which he tries to play on. He will definitely not be a threat anymore. That's what he has to offer. I do like this point here. This is in Dio. So Dio tells us, there's a bit of a lengthy passage, but Antony tries to make good with Octavian by giving up the last assassin of Caesar who's still around, a man called Publius Turullius. And he also offers to take his own life, which I guess he's hoping Octavian will say, no, 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 it's fine to. And Dio says, Caesar put Turullius to death. It chanced that this man had cut wood for the fleet from the grove of Asculapius in Cos. And since he was executed in Cos, he was thought to be making amends to the gods as well as to Caesar. So is that the out of executing a Roman citizen, I suppose? Yeah, because they've committed sacrilege. <laughs> wow. So it's not just I'm here handing is, an enemy over Here's my you. long bow. Yeah. <laughs> but this time also he gave no answer to Antony. This seems to be Octavian's game that he just doesn't really give a clear answer or no answer at all when they request things, mm. um, it, which... Sort of makes me think a little bit of Julius Caesar in the Gallic Wars of just holding people off, saying, oh, just wait a couple of weeks and let's see how it works. And in the meantime, he's got his troops together. I do wonder if Octavian's getting himself organized while he just doesn't really give an answer to Antony and Cleopatra. So while Antony didn't get any sort of response from Octavian, Cleopatra did. Probably not the one she wanted. So Dio continues... 
To Cleopatra, however, as in the first instance, so again on the second and third occasions, this is in response to her, mm. he sent many threats and promises also. So that's confusing for her, isn't it? Mm. Telling her that he's going to come and attack her, but then sometimes sending her, no, no, you'll be fine, I'll look after you, giving her some hope. You do wonder whether he's doing some kind of psychological play. He also tries to split Antony and Cleopatra up, even more than they maybe are. He says that if she would give up, this is a direct quote from Dyer, if she would give up her armed forces and renounce her sovereignty, he would consider what ought to be done in her case. That's nice and vague, I feel. <laughs> All of this is very vague. <laughs> um, he secretly sent word that if she would kill Antony, he would grant her pardon and leave her realm unharmed. I've got to wonder how sincere he would be. I don't think it's worth the paper it's written on, whatever yeah. it was written on. I guess it's a kind of divide and rule mm. attempt. And also he wouldn't have to kill Antony then. Yeah, it's a good strategy when dealing with Antony and Cleopatra, I think, when it's kind of clear that they're negotiating together but negotiating separately as well, that you would see that as a possible chink in the armour. Yeah, and it will seed suspicion between them, mm -hmm. even if she doesn't bite. A long year, as I said before. It makes it for a very long year. He's just... He's a git, isn't he, Octavian? <laughs> you don't have to leave that in. Oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's staying in. <laughs> that's the name of the episode. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a death he's super shrewd. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's still, he's still fairly young. Yeah. But... Better git. <laughs> they all are, though. I mean, Cleopatra's just been murdering people left, right and centre. Mm, mm. I, I have much too romantic a view of them that I have to try and curtail. So Octavian finally invades Egypt in the summer of 30 BCE. Although when I say Octavian, it's not him, of course. It's his, his men doing all the hard work. And then Octavian does come to Egypt, but anyway, invades Egypt. He does. And there's a kind of pincer movement, if you can call it that when it's over a big scale, mm. going on where one of his generals, Gallus, comes in from the west, so from North Africa, and Octavian from Syria, so from the east. Yeah. Gallus will end up being the governor of Egypt after all of this fallout. And he's also an elegiac poet. So he's multi-talented, is Gallus. Antony hopes to win troops back over. You know, his troops are part of the, the gang now, aren't they? Octavian's group of troops. They've defected. Oh, that's right. The four legions, for example. And, yeah. And, yeah, okay. He yeah. fails. And actually, there's an anecdote at this point that Antony tries to make a speech to them. He tries to shout towards his old troops yeah. and Gallus has the trumpeters blare at that point so that his speech can't be heard. Mean and kind of soap opera-ish but <laughs> you go but you know they've already defected I'm not sure they would go back at that point mm. and he really needs more troops he's got even if we're generous with what we regard him having it would make up about two legions and the auxiliaries that surround them and that's just not going to be enough against the troops Octavian has at this point. Yeah. We get a few different, you know, exchanges here of what happens as far as battles, but battle is a very generous word when applying it to any of this. It just seems to be a, a slow constriction of anything that's left in Alexandria. But there's a, a few points where Plutarch will tell us that Antony is betrayed by Cleopatra, mm -hmm. who either sends troops away or tips off Octavian in some way, you know, not directly. And I don't think Plutarch even comes out and says it. He just kind of insinuates that Cleopatra is working against Antony. And that could be something if she's made a bit of a deal with Octavian in the long run. Anyway, we'll just let that be, you know, Plutarch be Plutarch. 
So that's one aspect. The other is that Anthony is using whatever small victories he can to his advantage, but it seems to be buying time, if anything, at the most. And yeah. also, Octavian's not in that great deal of a hurry. No, he doesn't have very much to fear yeah. as long as he can keep Italy and Greece loyal at the moment. That's what he's been concentrating on. So one of the areas of what you mentioned with uh, Plutarch there, where doubt is thrown upon Cleopatra's loyalty, mm. I guess at this point, is that when Antony fails to win his troops back, he rushes back to Alexandria. And there he hears that Pelusium, which is sort of the fortress on Egypt's eastern border, has fallen to Octavian, because remember he was coming in from the east, that there's a, a story, I say, this actually comes from Dio, says that Cleopatra betrayed it to Octavian. Mm. And then apparently, this is certainly the way it could be read, she executes the family of the Egyptian general, the person who's in charge of that fortress, to make it look like she's angry that that has happened, that they've let her down. Mm, okay, so there's yeah. a kind of her attempting to double bluff Antony there, yeah. selling it out to Octavian and then cover her tracks. This kind of height of paranoia about Cleopatra's activities in our sources. I yeah. Would say. I, I, I don't know on whose side of the account I come down on all of this. You know, in some aspects, Antony has everything to lose, whereas Cleopatra wouldn't want to draw things out if she realizes that she's not going to win. Yeah. So, I mean, he is certainly at that point still trying to fight, though. Yeah. They're not getting clear answers. So presumably things change potentially every day for them. Yeah. You know, well, maybe there's a chance we could fight here. Maybe there's a chance we could negotiate with Octavian. No, it's all hopeless. There's nothing left to do. That feeling probably happened several times throughout this year. And yet there's moments where they've got passion and romance. So read out this Plutarch bit here. I quite like this. For the context, Octavian's troops are outside Alexandria, i.e. they've found where they camped out, apparently. It's right next to the Hippodrome. They found evidence of that there, the encampment. Antony goes out and attacks with his cavalry, takes them by surprise, calls it a great big victory. Yeah, and it's really just a skirmish. Oh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't bother Octavian it's at cling, all. cling, clang, cling, hooray! <laughs> Run away! <laughs> so Plutarch says in Chapter 75 of The Life of Antony that Antony is exalted by his victory and he went to the palace, kissed Cleopatra, all armed as he was, probably covered in dirt as well, Plutarch doesn't say that, and presented to her the one of his soldiers who had fought most spiritedly. Cleopatra gave the man, as a reward of his valour, a golden breastplate and a helmet. The man took them, of course, and in the night deserted to Caesar, i.e. Octavian. Yeah, it's a very cynical view at this point, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And then Plutarch continues, and he says they had one of their extravagant banquets that night. Of course, they've got to have their banquet. And, you know, remember, Plutarch's a very literary biographer, but I sort of like, at least from a literary point of view, what he's doing with the story here, that they've previously had these banquets as a kind of display of their power and wealth. Yeah, now, and, now it's just keeping up the impression. Yeah, a little bit. But also it, it, Plutarch gives it this tinge of doom as well, because Antony is, you know, it's not extravagant plans for the future. He's saying that he's wishing for a heroic death. Mm. And, you know, this is in keeping with there are going to be quotes from... Greek tragedy in the Iliad and, and this kind of espousing great epic heroes. So there's this sense 
in this retelling that he knows that it's all over. Yeah. This is the one last kind of blast before they go. So I like the way that Adrian Goldsworthy sums this up in his book on Antony and Cleopatra. He says in on page 216, overnight it was said people heard music and chants, just like one of the Dionysiac processions so favored by the two lovers. The sound seemed to leave the city as if the god was abandoning it. Mm. And he's summing up what Plutarch tells us there, but I think he does it really well. And of course the gods leaving, as you might imagine, is seen as imminent defeat and disaster. Yeah, it must the- have had that vibe in, in Alexandria in those final days, I guess. We'll explore now the death of Cleopatra and Antony. And our historical sources seem to be broadly in consensus in what they say. But I think, as I said earlier, niggling over the details. There's little bits and pieces to the extent where we don't know entirely what went down, especially when it comes to the death itself of Cleopatra, I think. Yeah, and I think that's become a kind of iconic scene that it's been painted and shown in movies so much. So Mm. we feel like we've got a version of it. And some of that version comes from our sources, but our sources themselves. It's not that they give different versions, even even within the same text. We're told, well, it could have been this or it might be that. Where did she get the poison? How was it applied? Clearly, there's a lot of doubt on this, even though there was an account from her doctor. What does surprise me is that there's not a lot of romance in this. I mean, I know they're tragic deaths, but this is seen to be a couple whose love was enduring. Uh, When you look at future portrayals, I'm talking about cinema, I'm talking about literature, I guess even Shakespeare and those sort of things and how it's portrayed. But they didn't even die at the same time. (laughs) Kind of blows all of that stuff out of the water. It does have a bit of a Romeo and Juliet element because Antony supposedly kills himself because he thinks Cleopatra's already dead. Yes, yes, yes. Shakespeare completely ripped that off. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I I think it's not an uncommon kind of telling of tragic love Mm. that because it makes you think oh they could have been okay they could have tried to escape they could have i mean i don't think they could have escaped but it's that extra element of drama but i think you're right overall that the version we tend to get in films although my abiding memory and it is a long time since i saw the liz taylor and richard burton film is that there seemed to be a long, long time where Antony had stabbed himself and he was just kind of crawling through the desert to get to Cleopatra. Mm. I don't, you're nodding. Have you seen it recently? No. no, I've never seen it before in my life. I might just be exaggerating that because it's a very long movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's in there. But, you know, it's portrayed as he just needs to get to the woman he loves to see her one last time. Ah, oh, how tragic. So the death of Antony is what we will cover first. And that seems to be, general consensus, a death by deception. Yeah, I guess so, because he's been told that Cleopatra's dead. When she's not. She's locked away in her mausoleum. Yeah, so she has set this up. She has staged it so that Antony believes that she is dead. That could be as a result of trying to carry favour with Octavian. If Octavian sees that Antony is dead, he might think more favourably on me. I by myself am no longer the threat that Alexandria was. Yeah, I mean, there's no account that says that she's directly responsible for his death, though, which I guess you could say if she's taken that hard decision that she's going to sacrifice Antony to save her own skin, Mm. then she could have sent an assassin, but she doesn't. Yeah, that might be a bit too much even for her, though. Yeah, I'm writing alternate histories as well, which is never good practice. The other part of it is that this plays right into Plutarch's portrayal of Antony as the hopeless romantic, lovesick, 
Yeah. Look, I think it's very telling that the slave he asks to help kill him is called Eros. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can it be a coincidence? Did Plutarch make that up? <laughs> I do wonder. And also the fact that it doesn't work because Eros takes the sword, makes like he's about to plunge it into Antony and instead plunges it into his own body. Look, you never want to be the slave who carried out your master's wishes and, and killed them because those slaves end up dead anyway. Yeah, well, he, you know, he doesn't even do that. He just takes death for himself, I guess. So Mark Antony falls on his own sword mm. and he's taken to Cleopatra still alive, mm. which, you know, he must have gone, oh, great, you're not dead, but I've kind of got my own thing going on now. Mm. <laughs> Directly afterwards, because he hasn't died, he has begged those around him to help him die, but nobody does. Yeah. And we're not really told why that is. Does nobody care? As you perhaps say, is nobody prepared to be the man who kills Mark Antony? But Plutarch does have this scene of him being carried to Cleopatra. He says that Cleopatra ordered that he be brought to her. Yeah. So that does make it look like she's pulling all the strings. The logic of this is a bit hard to take in. I mean, not that we always get that in ancient narratives, but it's not clear how she knew that he had killed himself. If this was all part of her plan, she would have had people keeping tabs on what's happening. I guess. Yeah. But speaking of pulling strings, Plutarch does describe a really strange kind of pulley system where Cleopatra winches him up through a window in her mausoleum because it's still under construction to a certain extent. Well, she sealed herself in yeah. with all of her goods and plenty yes. so that the enemy can't get in. This will play a part in uh, getting Cleopatra out as well. So, yeah, he's put onto this, I don't know, some kind of hammock arrangement and winched up as you said. Presumably it's not just her. There are other people helping her getting him in. Other people helping with the winch. And then she uh, she laments in the way that Greek and Roman women are meant to ritually. So that would have meant weeping, tearing of hair, scratching. The scratching will come into play a yeah. little bit later. So it's so. a display of grief. Exactly. Which no matter what part she played in Mark Antony killing himself, she would have, yeah, felt. So I buy all that, yeah. And uh, Antony dies. Yeah, he asks for wine, okay. which some think may have hastened his death. And he does die at the age of 53. Very um, tragic, very tragic, very tragic. Plutarch tells us that his last words are that he asks Cleopatra, he doesn't give direct speech, but he asks her not to weep for him since he had not been dishonorably vanquished. A Roman conquered by a Roman. Which, I don't know, if you've got a sword in your stomach and you've been carried over quite a way and winched up into a mausoleum, I'm not sure you'd be in any condition to make... Because it's quite a lot longer than that. I've abbreviated it. Oh, you just mean physically you wouldn't have been in the state to do that. Yeah, yeah. but then when I think of epic deaths, they've quite often got long speeches after there's a spear put in their throat. So <laughs> this may be some kind of reference to that. But it is a very Roman idea that he hasn't been conquered by some barbarian enemy. It's somebody who was equal of him, yeah. which is not the way he's thought of Octavian by and large, but that's the way he's spinning it at this point. So we are told that at some point in all of these proceedings, Octavian takes the palace. Uh, so maybe he has people watching on what's going on here as well. So how does Octavian come crashing down on this party? <laughs> Well, Cleopatra just refuses to come out of the mausoleum. Yeah. And Octavian needs her to come out and negotiate. Or It must be a really strong building because they can't get in. But she is tricked 
and it's by good old Gallus, who we mentioned just before. She's tricked into a conversation with him through the sealed door. And meanwhile, another of Octavian's men, Gaius Proculeus, climbs in through the window that they'd winched Antony through yeah. and stops her from stabbing herself. So oh, she's right. actually prepared to, to go then. Yeah. Um, and that's how they get her out. Okay. She's allowed to embalm Antony, which I, I thought was a long process. So maybe embalming yeah. isn't really the well, word that presume- it should be using. Presumably she starts the process or, you know, has the process started, but I'm, I, it takes up to 70 days apparently mm. and she's going to be dead long before that. Yeah. Meanwhile, Octavian has taken the palace and has her three children. Mm. He's got all the cards. Yeah. Seems to be one of the most important things to Cleopatra mm. currently that these children are, are safe. So she is taken to Octavian, but Octavian doesn't see her. She's now on a suicide watch in the palace. She's caught an infection from the cuts on her body, which presumably is from the ritual lament for Antony. Okay, so yeah. she's scratched herself and become infected. She has a fever. So she's very unwell at this point. When Octavian finally does go and see Cleopatra, how does that conversation play out? You've got an attempt here, an opportunity for Cleopatra to directly present her case to Octavian. Yeah, so it's got to be a negotiation, and the way it goes depends on which source you want to believe. The saucy source is Dio in this case, which I don't think you would have picked between Dio and Plutarch. But, uh, he, but he, remember, he is very much on the side of Augustus. He takes the Octavian narrative and portrays Octavian as being the Roman man who can resist Cleopatra's charm. So Cleopatra tries to seduce him and it doesn't work in most modern historians think that that doesn't fit well with this situation for Cleopatra. She usually plays these situations very well. They think that Dio is is making that up, uh, basically. Plutarch has her much more restrained. She's presented as in mourning, really, that she's in very plain dress. That seems to make more sense, especially if she's unwell and hasn't been eating. Mm. What they definitely talk about and what both sources say is that she presents to him what she can give Octavian in terms of material wealth, how she can help him, which absolutely makes sense. That's what she would do. So what she could get in return is her life and maybe hopefully her children's lives. But she probably asked not to be marched in the triumph, which certainly later the poet Horace will say she was too proud to be marched in a triumph, which Mm. might well give us the idea that he at least thinks that's the reason she killed herself. So she could have had her life, but she'd have to be put on display and mocked in this way, in this kind of ritualized way. She wouldn't have been killed, we think. They didn't do that with every single enemy captive, particularly women tended not to be killed at the end of this. So there's this, I mean, a lot were, Vercingetorix, when Caesar's triumph. But it's not something that happens 100% of the time. So that might have been what she was offered. Dishonoured in this way, this ritual dishonour, but Mm. you'll be allowed to live. And she may have decided not to because she's an Egyptian queen. We now have the death of Cleopatra. And I guess that she maybe did this out of pride. Doesn't want to be a captive, can't see a way forward as a queen. Mm -hmm. I I mean, you know, we'll never know for sure why she killed herself we don't even know exactly how she killed herself we're told a lot of perhaps this happened or perhaps it could have been done this way and there seems to be a consensus that she was poisoned at least but when it happened where it happened how it happened is all 
left with question marks. Yeah, so the version that seems to endure is of her using asps to bite her and Mm. put their poison into her. And then there's much involved discussion about how practical it is to get them into the room and whether it's disguised in baskets of different kind of fruit or figs. There is a version, a very early version, though, of Octavian showing a picture, since he didn't have Cleopatra to march in his triumph. There is an image of Cleopatra with snakes Mm. carried through the triumph a year later. So this may have been where that version started, or it may actually be based on his knowledge of how it happened. We don't know how the poison got into her. There are all these different stories of one version that it came in in a hollow hairpin. All right, she had this poison with her anyway in this hollow hairpin. Yeah. Strabo, who's a geographer. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's got a way in. <laughs> in book 17 of his geography, mentions poisoned ointment. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It's always poison but a lot of doubt about how she got that poison in. All right, with that caveat in place, did you maybe want to read through Plutarch just to kind of paint us a word picture? Yes. Plutarch gives us the story of the asp, but he uses the it is said, which is a way out of confirming something, I guess. But this is in the life of Anthony, chapter 86. It is said that the asp was brought with those figs and leaves and laid hidden beneath them. For thus Cleopatra had given orders that the reptile might fasten itself upon her body without her being aware of it, which suggests an element of cowardice. Yeah, anyway. But when she took away some of the figs and saw it, she said, there it is, you see, and bearing her arm, she held it out for the bite, which suggests just the opposite to what I've just said. Uh, Maybe the anticipation she didn't uh, look forward to, but when it came to it, she was brave. But others say, so that's just one version, others say that the asp was carefully kept shut up in a water jar and that while Cleopatra was stirring it up and irritating it with a golden distaff, it sprang and fastened itself upon her arm. But the truth of the matter, no one knows. Yeah, and that's the important part of it all, I think. Yeah, Yeah, which is uh, very frustrating and has been, as you say, so much written about this. It's been fixed with the asp, with the snake, because of what we see in paintings and especially in Hollywood movies. The interesting thing, many interesting things, one interesting thing about all of this is that in all of the accounts, there is no part of the motive that she is distraught because of the death of Antony. We have now injected a romantic element back into the death of Cleopatra and Antony. Cleopatra's death, at least, seems to be more strategic, I guess, long term. Yeah, exactly. That she she doesn't say any way out to retain her position as a queen. I'd say two things about this: a, all of our sources very biased, but b, have we seen along the way in our accounts really a romantic relationship? being presented in the way that we see it in movies. Is this something that Octavian could have engineered or welcomed? Is it to his benefit if Cleopatra is dead by her own doing? So this theory was put forward by Michael Grant in, I think, the 1970s or 80s. And I don't know of any other ancient historians really who've embraced it. Okay. And I guess the argument is that way he wouldn't have to deal with deciding what to do with her. You know, do you let her carry on being queen? Do you send her into exile? And his hands are clean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess you could argue if you were cynical the way that Cleopatra's were for Antony. 
although the sources try and manipulate it so that she's sort of responsible. Mm. Michael Grant argues it on the basis that Cleopatra could be awkward because remember that Arsinoe, Cleopatra's sister, was marched in Julius Caesar's triumph. Yeah. And there was sympathy from the Roman audience for her. So maybe you don't really want a woman marched in the triumph. On the other hand, Octavian will march the children and you'd think there might be equally sympathy for them. So I don't think it's a great argument. Octavian would have found some way of dealing with her if he needed to. I don't think he needed to engineer this. Okay. All right. So let's reflect on the aftermath of these proceedings now. So you just mentioned that the children are marched in the triumph. Those are the children of Antony and Cleopatra. Well, we only know the twins actually were. They're the only ones mentioned, but possibly the younger Ptolemy Philadelphus was as well. The twins were 11 years old. Yeah. I imagine that was quite traumatic for them. But, yeah. Let's go through the children then. So Caesarian, Cleopatra's son by Caesar, who she had been co-ruling with at the time, he had been encouraged to flee Alexandria by Cleopatra while she was still alive. Uh, so he reigns independently for, <laughs> for a grand total of 18 days, I've got here. Yeah. If that can be called reigning. But... Well, you know, the prime ministerships have been... Oh, well. Almost as short. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he... Does Caesarian outlast a head of lettuce? <laughs> uh, probably not in the heat of Egypt. Poor Caesarian, he'd just kind of gone through the ritual, these the Greek one, with him to become a man so that he would be able to rule. Well, that's one of the reasons. And he is given the means, encouraged to flee by Cleopatra but he is captured and executed on Octavian's orders before the end of the month, so 29th of August, 30 BC. We've got Marcus Antonius Antillus, who is the eldest son of Fulvia and Mark Antony. Yes, so he's the elder of the two, Antillus, and he has taken sanctuary around the image of the deified Julius Caesar in Alexandria, which should grant him sanctuary, but he's dragged away from it. And he, despite his many vain entreaties, as we're told, he was killed on the spot. Okay. So there is a younger son of Fulvia and Mark Antony, Mm. and he is sent back to be raised by Octavia. Mm -hmm. So a bit of mercy for the younger son there in that case, uh, as are the three children of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Yeah, so the elder two, Cleopatra Cellini and Alexander Helios, are marched in triumph by Octavian, possibly the younger Ptolemy Philadelphus too, Mm. and ultimately they are raised by Octavian's sister Octavia in Rome. Right, and we don't hear about the two boys again, which is ominous. (laughs) Maybe. There is a theory that they are sent to Numidia when Cleopatra Cellini marries Juba II, but it's just it's just a theory because we don't hear about them again. Yeah. Yeah, the girl Cleopatra Cellini is used in, in kind of a marriage alliance, isn't she? She is. Yeah. So for Octavian, so for young Caesar, this is a big triumph. It is treated as such. Uh, Egypt is now part of Rome. It's, it's folded in as a proper province. Yeah. Eventually. Well, it's a private backyard for Octavian, but technically it's a province. (laughs) Remember, he doesn't let a senator Mm. go there as governor. Yeah. And he reflects it as such as one of his big accomplishments, doesn't he? 
He does. I mean, this triumph is his kind of glorious return to Rome, sets off his whole reign. It represents his power. And it's no coincidence that he wants to march Egyptian goods, Egyptian booty, a picture of Cleopatra and at least two of her children in that triumph. Mm. There is a gilded statue of Cleopatra in the Temple of Venus Genetrix, built by Julius Caesar in his forum, which may have been put there by Caesar. Appian tells us that Caesar commissioned it, but Dio implies that it's part of the spoils, so maybe taken from Egypt and brought back. You meant to take the spoils to Jupiter Capitolinus, but spoils end up in various temples. Okay. So it may have been part of that. And I think... Dio might be trying to explain, maybe he knows, but he might be trying to explain why there's a statue of Cleopatra still hanging around in Rome, given that she was defeated, yeah. which I must admit does seem a bit strange. And he says in book 51, 22, Dio says, thus Cleopatra, though defeated and captured, was nevertheless glorified inasmuch as her adornments remain as dedications in our temples, and she herself is seen in gold in the Temple of Venus. Very interesting that they'd keep that statue on display. But ultimately, how can we think of Cleopatra then? What can we say about her as a ruler? Was she efficient? Was she respected? And is there a massive disconnect about how the Romans saw her and how she saw herself? There really is, given that the Romans depict her as this barbarian anomaly. I mean, we've, we've mentioned so many times before that having a queen in itself, A, a monarch, B, a woman in charge, mm. that's kind of the cross-section of two taboos for the Romans. And she is very much depicted as leading a Roman general astray. We get that very clearly in Plutarch and other sources too. But Plutarch does have this kind of grudging but respect for her. And I think we can tell both a little bit from our Roman sources, but largely from archaeological sources, remains and inscriptions, that there's a great deal of respect for her in, in Egypt itself, so that she is seen as someone who's very efficient in a time of crisis, the big one being famine. And she is worshipped as a goddess, of course. Mm. And she has that other aspect as a Hellenistic queen. So she's got these two ways of being represented, neither of which really... Well, I guess the Hellenistic queen sort of makes sense to the Romans. But, you know, it's still something that it's going to take a while for them to get used to with the idea of an emperor being introduced. Yeah. So it's something that Augustus's family will take on board. They'll kind of wrap it up much more benignly for the Roman audience. She's kind of unacceptable for their terms because they're still stuck in this very patriarchal Republican format. I think um, part of her would have enjoyed being unacceptable. <laughs> I hope so, because uh, it certainly wasn't easy for her at the end, as we've seen. Equally, I should say that what we've seen here and throughout is that she can be extremely ruthless. She gets rid of the members of her family who stand in her way and a lot of members of the Egyptian court. And she is clearly starting or continuing the Ptolemaic dynasty and starting her own kind of subset of that yeah. with these children that she's bringing up from Caesar and Antony. That is her goal. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily her goal to take over Italy and the Roman Empire. I don't see any signs of that. No. But she wants to maintain that dynasty in Egypt and maintain power there. And she's pretty ruthless in her attempt to do it. So is the story of Cleopatra and Antony then one where the mythology has overshadowed the reality in your view? How do you reconcile those two aspects of the Queen and her story? Well, I do wonder whether we'd have this romantic version of her if it weren't for particularly Shakespeare but you know 
Western representations of her as a, a tragic lover figure, mm. both her and Antony, that they play into that and that's become even more emphatic since the rise of film. But it's there in Western painting as well, Western art, and a lot of films play on what had previously been there in particularly painting and a bit in sculpture too. So, yeah, that's the primary way we're seeing her and we're sort of doing a disservice to her, I think, because I don't think we see a version like that at all in our sources. For all I've said, we need to be very suspicious of our sources as playing into the Augustan narrative, the Roman narrative. What we can read between the lines there is very much about a savvy ruler rather than somebody who's constantly falling in love with Romans or seducing Romans or whichever way around you want to see it. And I think along the way, we've talked about how each of these liaisons with Caesar and Antony make sense for both of those couples at that time. Yeah, They're interested in power broking in their part of the world and, and this works for them. The other side of the mythologizing as well, though, is that the Romans were already mythologizing Cleopatra after her death in their own time. Yeah, but not as a romantic figure. As no. A, as a kind of dreadfully terrifying threat from the East. So she's kind of exoticized, but not so much as sexy or only sexy in the way that could be dangerous, but, you know, hanging out with eunuchs and weirdos and animal gods and all of it being sort of seen as weird and strange. Mm. So she's this strange figure that Augustus saved them from. So he can kind of brand himself as a saviour figure the more that he and his propaganda machine make her out to be this anomalous, awful threat. So it really works for him to have her depicted in that way. That's Dr Rhiannon Evans, Associate Professor in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any other podcasting platform. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like the Emperors of Rome on our Facebook page and you can follow us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it for this year for Emperors of Rome. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic and thanks for listening.